0: Let us pray. Gracious God, give us humble, teachable, and obedient hearts that we may receive what you have revealed and do what you have commanded. Amen. Our New Testament reading this morning comes from the book of Romans, chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. The Apostle Paul is writing for a world in which people were desperately trying to find the key to gain access to God. Listen now to God's word for you and for me. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God and not only that but we also boast in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed rarely will anyone die for a righteous person though perhaps for a good person Someone might actually dare to die, but God proves his love for us, that while we still were sinners, Christ died for us. The word of the Lord.
1: Today's second reading comes from the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. Listen listen now for God's word to you. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the Oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. He looked up and saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent entrance to meet them and bowed down to the ground. He said, My Lord, if I find favor with you, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought. "'and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. "'Let me bring a little bread, that you may refresh yourselves, "'and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant.' "'So they said, Do as you have said.' "'And Abraham hastened into the tent to Sarah and said, "'Make ready quickly three measures of choice flour. knead it and make cakes.' Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the servant who hastened to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is your wife, Sarah? And he said, There in the tent. Then one said, "'I will surely return to you in due season, "'and your wife Sarah shall have a son.' "'And Sarah was listening at the tent entrance behind him. "'Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. "'It had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. "'So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, "'After I have grown old and my husband is old,' Shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the set time I will return to you in due season, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, oh, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, oh, yes, you did laugh. The word of the Lord. Today's passage from Genesis is part of a longer story between Abraham, Sarah, and this God who promises them even in their old age, an heir, a child whose descendants will match the number of stars in the sky and the grain of sands on the shore. The snippet of the story we heard today chronicles an encounter between this old couple long accustomed to their barrenness and three visitors. We don't know who these three men are, and it really it doesn't matter. What does matter is that Abraham realizes quickly that these visitors speak for God, the God who has consistently challenged he and his wife's acceptance of a future that looks a lot like their past. Abraham, Abraham understands these unexpected visitors are divinely sent, and so he takes a posture of worship towards them and extends them Hospitality. And as these men consume the curds, milk, and calf that he prepared for them, Abraham, we are told, stands nearby under a tree while they eat. And in that moment, God speaks. God speaks through one of the voices of one of the men. God speaks into Sarah and Abraham's doubt and resignation, giving them a timeline for the promise that up to this point seemed nothing but a distant dream. I will surely return to you in due season, and your wife Sarah shall have a son. And hearing this promise of God, Sarah laughs. To disbelieve the promises of God is the human condition. We believe in God, That's never really been the issue. Last count, 90% of Americans believed in the existence of a higher power. Now, we believe in God. What we struggle struggle to accept are the promises of God revealed to us in the stories of our faith. Like Abraham and Sarah, like Job and Gideon, like the disciples of Jesus, we hear we hear what God has to say. We, we listen to the promises. We even recite them. But when we are alone in our tent, we laugh them off as aspirational goals that will only be accomplished when Christ returns, if they are accomplished at all. The promises of God are just too big, too ridiculous, too outlandish to be taken at face value. Don't believe me? Okay. Let's take a moment to consider some of the promises of God that we today laugh off as pie-in-the-sky fantasy or religious mumbo-jumbo. Promises that are clearly stated in our scriptures old and new. The promise that God will provide for our every need or the vision of a world where nations turn their swords into plowshares. The promise that forgiveness is actually possible, and that even the most hardened heart, hardened criminal, can be reformed. The promise of a world where no widow or orphan or homeless person goes a night without food and shelter The promise that people with different loyalties, ethnicities, and backgrounds can actually work together towards a common goal. The promise that love, that love is more powerful than hate. The promise that we can actually create a world where men and women can be judged by the content of their character and not the color of their skin or their sexuality or their income or political affiliation. The promise that water can come from a rock, manna from the sky, and life from the shadows of death. We hear these promises, we even recite them from time to time, but we often do not live as if they are true. We hear them, but we quickly and easily shrug them off as fool's gold. And in response, Nearly every single time, into our doubt, into our resignation, into our complacency, God sends a child to lead us back to the promise. Isaac, Joseph, Moses, David, Mary, Jesus, every time we accept the status quo over and against the promises of God, the promises of a new heaven and new earth, God sends a child to save us. As the protests over the murder of George Floyd, Brianna Taylor, and countless other people of color who have died at the hands of the police morphs as it morphs into something more, a call for deeper reconciliation, a call for systemic change, a call for reparations of some kind. I'm amazed, absolutely amazed, at how young the organizers of this movement are. The people leading this movement are children. I don't mean little kids, but they are young people in their 20s who not too long ago were learning to bike, read, and swim. And this group of children, our children, our grandchildren, looks a lot different than the Freedom Summer crowds a couple of generations ago. This movement is made up of young people of every shade, every nationality, every creed. This group looks a lot like the coalition Dr. King called for when he sought to motivate a generation of the faithful to peacefully protest against racial and economic injustice. Make no mistake about it. This movement is being led by young people, our children, our grandchildren, who for the most part are incredibly organized, motivated, and focused. And on top of that, despite our generation's failure to move this country closer to God's promises, these young people, these children, our children, our grandchildren, they actually believe that our nation's tomorrow can and will be better. They actually believe in the promises we have received, which is incredibly striking because based on surveys and anecdotal evidence, young people today are the least religious generation in our nation's history, and yet they are the ones who are braving infection, violence, and judgment to demand that we all be better, that our nation be better, that our world be better. They are the ones demanding that this world look more like the world Jesus talked so much about. Once again, like it was for Abraham and Sarah, into our acceptance of a future that looks a lot like our past, God sends a child to lead us back to the promise. And as we middle-aged and older folks stand and watch with a mixture of amazement and, frankly, concern, as our young people demand more, I can't get Abraham's question out of my mind. Is anything too wonderful, too impossible for the Lord? This question means to refute and dismiss the protests and doubts of the hopeless couple and of those of us who have ceased to believe that things can and will improve. And it's a refutation posed as a question because the gospel demands a decision. It demands an answer to the foundational query, is anything too wonderful, too impossible for the Lord? Now, if the answer is yes, some things are too wonderful, too impossible— then we have not given absolute power and freedom to God, and we have decided to live in a closed universe where things are stable, reliable, and hopeless. But if the answer is no, nothing is too wonderful, too impossible for God, then maybe, just maybe, what's happening on our streets, in corporate boardrooms, on college campuses, in government buildings, and in cities around the globe is actually the beginning of something that will move us closer to the world God intends. Leopold van Ranke was a historian of the 19th century who sought to build a timeline of human history. After 30 years of study and research, he made a really interesting discovery while it was true that humanity had made moral progress over time, he mapped the moral progress of humanity, and we have improved over time, this progress, this moral progress he discovered is not a straight line up and to the right. It turns out moral progress is a jagged line full of peaks and valleys. Von Ranke's discovery is important because I think we get trapped in our own time. When we get trapped in our own time, our own situation, our own circumstance, human beings can come to believe that this is all there is, that life can't get any better than this. And yet we know if we step back and look at the bigger picture, we see humanity is getting better. The world is is safer than it's ever been. Infant mortality rates are low. Life expectancy, even compared to a few centuries ago, is incredibly high. And while it is true, injustices still remain. Many are being named and confronted for the very first time. The morality of the human race has improved, but we Easily lose belief in this truth because we are stuck in our own moment and because we have come to believe that, that moral progress should mirror the steady, relentless improvement of technology. But unlike technological progress, moral progress is a struggle with sharp peaks and valleys that are drawn by humanity's willingness to do what needs to be done to keep us moving forward. As Frederick Douglass observed, A battle lost or won is easily described, understood and appreciated, but the moral growth of a great nation requires reflection as well as observation to appreciate it. Moral progress is not clean or easy and it can often feel like two steps forward and one step back. But I believe Dr. King was right. The arc of the universe is bent towards justice, and as I watch a new generation of young people, a generation that is often critiqued for being lazy or entitled or dependent, as I watch them exercising their will to bend the arc towards justice, I can't help but wonder if God is the one who has sent them to save us from our hopelessness. For 400 years, the church in America has been primarily and preferably quiet as the sins of systemic racism and economic inequality have torn at the very fabric of this nation. While there have been moments in the church's history when we were on the right side of history, more often than not, we have settled for the status quo. Like Abraham and Sarah, we prefer to be resigned to the way things are rather than to consider what could be. Instead of living into God's promises, we laugh at them and scorn those who demand more from us so they can be realized. And yet every single time the people of God doubt and scoff and lose hope, God sends a child, the embodiment of the hope the future holds. I can only speak for myself here, but I'll be honest, I have found myself at times judging and critiquing and analyzing some of the actions and words of the young people who are leading the movement taking place on our streets. I don't like all of their strategies or all the words they choose. I even laugh when I hear some of their demands that seem to me to be overreaches overreaches examples of youthful naivete. Whenever I witness their unbridled passion for a better world, a small voice in my head chuckles at the idea that they think the web of systemic racism can be unwoven, that they think we can actually have peace without violence, that they think that economical, economic and educational equality is possible. But then as I hear my laughter, I hear the question posed to Abraham and Sarah after God promised them the one thing they wanted more than anything else in this world. Is anything too wonderful, too impossible for God? The more I think about it, my laughter says a lot more about me than it does the young people on the streets. My laughter says a lot more about my pride than it does their perspective it says a lot more about my lack of faith than their hope. A part of me, if I'm honest, is angry. A little angry that this movement is their movement and not mine. I've put in my time. A part of me is annoyed that this transformational moment in our nation is in the hands of children and not adults. A part of me is struggling to accept that the future is more theirs than it is mine. I'm also a little upset as a leader in the church that I'm being asked to follow children rather than lead them. And yet as the movement grows and more injustices are named and policy begins to shift and hearts begin to break open, I can't help but wonder if nothing really is too wonderful, too impossible for God. I mean, who would have thought, even a few months ago, that a movement led by young people from all walks of life, each holding the promise of their family's future, would change our collective conversation so quickly. A few months ago, we would have said it was impossible, laughable even. And yet here we are. Now, maybe the cynics are right. Maybe these protesters are too young to know how the world really works. Maybe they are taking it too far and demanding too much. It's possible. Maybe this movement will fizzle out and get hijacked by extremists. Maybe we'll look back at all this and have a good chuckle. Or maybe, just maybe, these young people know intuitively what the church in America has struggled to accept for centuries. Maybe they know what the Apostle Paul articulated so well over 2,000 years ago when he said Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, he writes, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts. If it is possible that these young people who are leading this movement are the ones to move us closer to God's promises, if they are the ones for whom hope has not yet disappointed, then the reality is we need to listen to them. We need to follow their lead. We need to offer them love support like abraham we need to rush into our tents to give them food and drink and a place to rest their weary feet because regardless of where you sit on the political spectrum regardless about how you feel about the particularities of the policies they are demanding the future belongs to them not us they are the ones who now hold the promise that had been ours alone until now. Make no mistake about it, if this country really is going to move forward and not back, if the church is going to come out of its cocoon and be a part of the changes promised by God, if true reconciliation is going to happen, if the lions of hatred and violence really are going to learn to lie down with the most vulnerable among us, the lambs who have been for too long sacrificed, if all that's going to happen, it will be the children our children, our grandchildren, the young people who will lead us back to the promise. And the path they have us on is not easy. Walking it will cause us suffering and some pain and some loss. But it's the work that calls to us. It's the work that will shape us. It's the work that demands from us an answer to the defining question of our lives. Is anything too wonderful, too impossible for God? Amen.